And if it's safe now, will it be safe in 10 minutes? Nobody knows. The latest on this weekend's unprecedented attacks on Israel and Israel's response. For Sunday, October 8th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. We'll also hear how the international community is responding to the violence in the Middle East and a report from Afghanistan, where more than 2,000 are dead after a series of deadly earthquakes in a remote region. We'll also have a close look at the relationship between Amazon and the independent sellers on its market and why they say the tech giant is squeezing them out. Once Amazon starts selling it, I'm just closed out of the market. And in this week's Enlighten Me, spirituality in a moment of crisis. Do we have the courage? to understand that this is not just an ecological crisis or a political crisis, but at its heart, a spiritual crisis. First, these news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Israel is still trying to gain control of territories where Hamas militants from Gaza invaded as Israeli warplanes bombed Gaza. The death toll in Israel has risen to at least 700, according to Israeli media, and at least 413 Palestinians have been killed, according to the health ministry in Gaza. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more from Tel Aviv. Israel has begun to evacuate Israeli civilians from areas surrounding the Gaza Strip as Hamas rocket fire continues. Israeli bombings continue on Gaza. A dozen multi-story towers were destroyed and many Palestinians have fled their homes for shelters. In Israel, schools switched to remote learning. In Tel Aviv, shops and restaurants were mostly closed. Few people ventured outside. The warfare is impacting Israel's bitter political divisions. After nine months of anti-government protests, protest leaders are now helping with the war effort, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his main political rivals say they're willing to join together in an emergency government for the duration of the war. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the U.S. is trying to verify reports that several Americans may be among the dead and missing in Israel. NPR's Lauren Freyer has more. In a Facebook post, the family of Nathaniel Young, a British man serving in the Israeli military, say they are heartbroken to share that he was killed on the Gaza border. The mother of another British man, Jake Marlowe, told a Jewish newspaper in London that her son was also near Gaza when the attack unfolded. He called her as rockets flew overhead, later texted that he loves her, but now hasn't been heard from since early Saturday. Those missing include at least 12 Nepalese students students in southern Israel, and 11 Thai nationals. Their country's foreign ministry says some of them may have been abducted and brought into Gaza. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, London. New York City Mayor Eric Adams has wrapped up a four-day trip to Latin America, trying to convince migrants not to make the journey north as his city deals with an overwhelming influx. John Otis has more from Bogota. Adams traveled to the Colombian town of Necoclí. That's where U.S.-bound migrants start the dangerous trek across the roadless Darien jungle. At a news conference, Adams acknowledged that many are fleeing violence and economic strife in Latin America. We must be clear about what is happening here and how it connects to what is happening in our city. But he said migrants are being fed misinformation. More than 120,000 migrants have streamed into the city over the past year, and Adams insisted that New York is running out of jobs and shelters to house them. For NPR News, I'm John Otis in Bogota, Colombia. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. The daughter and son-in-law of a Brandeis University professor are among those killed in Israel in the Hamas attack. The university confirmed today that the relatives of Professor Emeritus Ilan Troen are among the casualties. Brandeis President Ron Leibowitz said the university is deeply saddened that Professor Troen has lost his daughter and son-in-law and that the community holds him, his wife, and his entire family in their thoughts. Northeastern University confirmed three of its students are in Israel and that they are safe following the attack. Northeastern said the students have been there on a co-op program and that the university is helping to evacuate them from Israel. State police said traffic was temporarily diverted early this afternoon after fire broke out at a homeless encampment under the Boston University Bridge on the Cambridge side. Fire officials said no one was found at the site. The cause of the fire was not immediately known. Mayor Michelle Wu is defending her ordinance to empower police to break up the encampment at the intersection of what is known as Mass and Cass. On WBZ's Keller at Large, she said it would increase the transparency and effectiveness of police actions. When our police department comes to me and says that they need to be able to move more quickly and to have the clear delegated authority to address the issues at Mass and Cass, I'm going to make sure that I do what I can to provide that and so that we as a community all are on the same page. The mayor said the ordinance would allow for the removal of tents and after the occupants have been offered shelter, transportation, and storage of their belongings. Good Samaritan Medical Center in Brockton reopened late this morning after a power outage yesterday partially closed the hospital. During the outage, ambulances were diverted to other hospitals. The Patriots lost to New Orleans this afternoon in Foxborough 34 to nothing. The Pats' record drops to 1-4. and four. Clear skies, upper 40s overnight, mostly sunny tomorrow, low 60s, 63 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. The updated death tolls from Israel and Gaza tell the story of just how widespread and how deadly this weekend's attacks were. The surprise multi-pronged attacks by the Palestinian militant group Hamas against Israel have killed at least 700 people, according to reports in the Israeli media. Israel's military says it's continued to fight the militants on Israeli territory for a second day, while also pounding Gaza with airstrikes. Palestinian officials say more than 400 people have been killed in Gaza so far. Thousands are injured as well in both Gaza and Israel. This latest burst of violence, shaping up to be the most serious in decades, began with an unprecedented wave of attacks by Hamas militants. The militants infiltrated several Israeli communities using a variety of methods, including boats and paragliders. They fired on civilians and soldiers alike and engaged Israeli security forces in gun battles. They took hostages. All the while, militants also fired thousands of rockets from Gaza. Hospitals in Israel quickly filled with people injured in the attacks. NPR's Daniel Estrin spoke with people anxiously awaiting news of their loved ones at one medical facility. So we're here waiting. Waiting for? Information. Something. Daniela Zaytouni was comforting her friend, Batsheva Eluz, 
whose son is missing. He is alive, the woman said about her son. Maybe they're looking for him in the field. Bring me my son, she pleaded. Another man, Elon Trowin, was mourning the loss of his daughter and son-in-law. He struggled for words to explain what had happened. He referenced the Shoah, the Holocaust. The world does not work in a straight formula. We know that from the Shoah. We know that from all kinds of life experiences. This is just another one to add to the long list of events that we just can't understand. Israel's response to these attacks was swift and also deadly. Israeli airstrikes rained down on Gaza. Thousands of people sought safety in crowded UN shelters. One man, Hassan Gabayan, told NPR that most Gaza residents were struggling to make ends meet, even before this latest violence erupted. We do not have the basic aid, like milk for the children, and no one will support us. We have no capability for this. Times are quite difficult. Still, he said, he supports the attacks by Hamas. One of his distant relatives, Bahira Gabayan, agreed with him. I salute the resistance and I am very proud of them. Until when are we supposed to live under occupation and siege? Either we live a life of dignity or we die. Those are voices from Gaza and Israel reacting to the events there over the past couple of days. For the latest on what is happening on the ground, we now turn to NPR's Aya Batrawi in Tel Aviv. Hey, Aya. Hi, Scott. It's just past midnight where you are. What do we know about the situation at this moment? Here in Israel, there's still an ongoing Israeli military operation to reclaim areas in the south where Hamas gunmen attacked yesterday. And Israeli communities near the Gaza border were struck, but so too was a massive music festival. Um, And we've seen reports in Israeli media that as many as 100 people, Israeli soldiers and civilians, could have been taken hostage, uh, taken to Gaza, that is, um, and among them are some foreign nationals. And in the Tel Aviv neighborhood where I am, nearly every store and restaurant were shuttered during the day. Schools have been closed. I could see attack helicopters in the sky, added checkpoints. People are on edge. And this definitely feels like a country on a war footing. Here's what Israeli Defense Forces spokesman Daniel Hagari said earlier today. The days ahead will be long and difficult. We have paid a heavy price, but we will restore security to the people of Israel. Let me repeat, we will store security to the people of Israel. And many Israelis seem to know someone who has been affected by this. On my way from Dubai today, catching this flight to Tel Aviv, the flight had reservists, Israeli reservists being called to duty. And one of them was a man who had just found out on the plane that one of the members of his unit had died. And when I went up to him to ask him what, you know, how he felt and and what this, why he was grieving, he said to me, um, we're going to raise Gaza to the ground, all of its 2.3 million residents. Um, So emotions are very high. And, you know, we're hearing not that, not that, not that different uh, language from Israeli leaders. So what do we know at this point about the situation in the Gaza Strip? 
Mm -hmm. Well, people in Gaza are bracing themselves. Already around 74,000 people have left their homes in the hopes of finding safety in dozens of UN shelters. Most of those would be schools across the Gaza Strip. I mean, people in Gaza have been through multiple conflicts and wars, and they know intimately the toll. Um, and there have already been near constant bombardments since yesterday. Israel controls air, land, and sea access to much of the Gaza Strip. This is a tiny strip of land that's been under a blockade for 16 years by Israel and Egypt. And there's no way for people there to leave, not even through Egypt's border, except if you have the few that might have the right permissions and paperwork. So people in Gaza, some of them see this like as a response to collective punishment. Others are terrified about the price they might have to pay for something Hamas did. Um, I spoke, I heard from Ruba Akila. Um, she's a child and gender protection expert in the Gaza Strip, and she's a Palestinian resident there. She lives near the Mediterranean Sea and fears her home could be struck by Israel's navy positioned off the coast. Every time she eats or prays, she tells me, I wonder if it's my last time. Let's we take a listen. We don't know if it's going to be safe to leave the home or not in the first place. And if it's safe to leave the home, is the, is the destination going to be safe or not? Nobody knows. And if it's safe now, will it be safe in 10 minutes? Nobody knows. Uh, my colleague Majdal Wahidi spoke with Dr. Mithat Abbas. He's the Director General of Gaza's Health Ministry. He said already a hospital and many high-rise towers have been struck by Israel. They said we have not started yet. We have not started yet. What's the meaning of they will start? We don't know what will happen if they start. If after all of that they have not started, then what will happen when they really, I don't know, are they planning for a big massacre in Gaza? I don't know. But they are only civilians. I mean, who will pay for that? They are Gazan civilians. I, any sense from, from the people you're talking to, from what you're seeing, how this could end? Well, tonight we know Israeli tanks continue to head south to the border with Gaza, and that raises the specter of a land invasion. There are fears that this conflict could widen. We've already seen, um, and that it could inflame a, an already tense situation between Israelis and Palestinians in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. And from where I'm standing, there's a lot of shock and disbelief at how an attack of this magnitude could happen. Many Israelis are calling it a catastrophic intelligence failures. And questions to if Hamas acted alone or with Iran's backing. Mm -hmm. So on both sides, there's anguish and questions about how does this end? Or really, will it ever end? That's NPR's Aya Batrawi in Tel Aviv. Thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. The United Nations Security Council met this afternoon in emergency session as diplomats try to contain the conflict in Gaza and Israel. The Biden administration says the U.S. is standing firmly behind Israel. And today, the administration announced it's sending a naval carrier strike group to the eastern Mediterranean as a show of support. And the U.S. says countries that have influence with Palestinian militant group Hamas should condemn the group for its assault and press it to release hostages. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Secretary of State Antony Blinken made the rounds on the Sunday morning talk shows, calling this a massive terrorist attack by Hamas, whose militants dragged Israeli men, women and children across the border into Gaza. A Holocaust survivor in a wheelchair, women and children all being taken hostage. So. You can imagine the impact this is having uh, in Israel, and it should be revolting to people around the world. Outside the UN Security Council, Israel's ambassador to the United Nations, Gilad Erdan, held up pictures and showed videos on his iPad of Israelis being hauled away by Hamas in what he described as a barbaric pogrom. He said Hamas is no different from ISIS and Al-Qaeda, and the world shouldn't try to reason with them anymore. This is Israel's 9-11. This is Israel's 9-11, and Israel will do everything to bring our sons and daughters 
back home. The State Department is looking into reports that some Americans are among those held hostage. Several Americans were also reportedly killed. Blinken told NBC's Meet the Press that everyone in the Biden administration has been working the phones to rally support for Israel and encourage countries in the region to use their influence with Hamas. The president, myself, everyone throughout our government, uh, working around the world, both to build up that support and to get countries to use the influence they may have uh, with Hamas to get it to cease and desist. While the U.S. wants to see the world come together to condemn Hamas, the Palestinian ambassador at the United Nations, Riyad Mansour, doesn't want the world to give Israel a blank check. You cannot say nothing justifies killing Israelis and then provide justification for killing Palestinians. The Palestinians are calling for an emergency meeting of the Arab League. Until this weekend, U.S. diplomacy in the region was focused on a long-sought-after deal to get Israel and Saudi Arabia to normalize ties. Secretary Blinken told NBC there's no secret who opposes that. Those who are opposed to the talks, those who are opposed to Israel normalizing its relations with its neighbors and with countries beyond the region are Hamas, Hezbollah, and Iran. Uh, and so it's entirely possible that one of the motivations for this attack was to try to derail uh, these efforts to advance normalization. Israel's ambassador Erdogan echoes that. Uh, they definitely want to derail the chances of having um, uh, normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel. We still uh, want it to happen. We'll do everything that we can to uh, live uh, in coexistence with all, all of our neighbors. But Israel right now is at war with Hamas. And though the U.S. says it doesn't have indications that Iran was behind this Hamas assault, Iran does have a long history of arming and financing Hamas and other terrorist groups in the region. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the United Nations. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR, and we're glad you are. Good afternoon. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks for being with us. If one Massachusetts lawmaker has anything to say about it, the entire Bay State will officially celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day next October 9th. The Path to Change, tomorrow morning with Rupa Shinoy on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, committed to strengthening democracy. Join a discussion on Supreme Court reform October 25th, emkinstitute.org. Clear skies overnight, upper 40s, mostly sunny tomorrow, low 60s, a chance of showers, mid-60s Tuesday. Sunshine returns, mid-60s Wednesday, 63 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include the Umbrella Arts Center, presenting Lizzie. Lizzie Borden finally gets her say in this ghost story meets rock concert musical, now through November 5th. More at TheUmbrellaArts.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The death toll in the Hamas attack on Israel is rising, with more than 1,000 people dead, thousands more injured on both sides. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says Americans may be among the dead or among those taken hostage by Hamas. This as Israel battles militants in the southern part of the country for a second day.
An American climber and a guide from Nepal died in avalanches this weekend on the slopes of the Tibetan mountain Shishapangma. Another American and her Nepalese guide are missing. They were among more than 50 climbers trying to reach the summit. And at the weekend box office, The Exorcist Believer debuted in the top spot. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. If your hands are free, if you're not behind the wheel of a car right now, go ahead and Google the words hot sauce. Here, I'll do it myself. I'm looking at the results, and more than half of them that pop up on the first page I see are from Amazon. So I'll click on one of the Amazon links. I've got free one-day shipping. There's a Prime label, and it's kind of cheap. Done. Click, hot sauce, on the way to my house. So many products are sold to us like this these days. But that is exactly what worries Nicholas Parks, who runs Snob Foods in Birmingham, Alabama. Once Amazon starts selling it, I'm just closed out of the market. Parks started selling sauces through Amazon back in 2002, when he was a law school student with very little income. Amazon was a great marketplace for maybe the first 10 or 12 years. The fees were low. We shipped everything from actually what was at the time a spare bedroom. But things started changing a few years before the pandemic. The fees sellers paid to Amazon slowly doubled. Many sellers started raising prices just to make a profit. So what was a $10 bottle of hot sauce four or five years ago is like a $13 or $14 bottle of hot sauce now. And then Amazon starts selling that exact same hot sauce itself, but cheaper. The result is that Amazon ends up being the only seller on like millions and millions of items. We're going to talk about all of this with two NPR colleagues who cover it, and that's retail correspondent Alina Seljuk and tech correspondent Dara Kerr. Hey there. Hello, hello. Hey. All right, so I think that that introduction helped illustrate this murky part of Amazon, and that's the fact that you're not just dealing with Amazon when you're searching through it, right? You're dealing with all of these different people trying to sell you a slight variation of the exact same thing. Yeah, most of what we buy is sold by someone like Nicholas Parks. At first, it was Amazon selling everything itself. Remember, Mm -hmm. it was like the bookstore that's now an everything store. But quickly, they figured out that that's kind of impossible to be the one everything store. And they started to solicit small businesses to come and sell on the platform. And over the years, I've talked to dozens of these folks. Um, Some are the real deal artisans that were really excited to have this huge reach with lots of shoppers, thanks to Amazon. But most are middlemen. There's lots of like 20 somethings, small scale business owners, anyone kind of willing to hustle for stuff wholesale. It was a crazy opportunity. They couldn't even imagine 20 years ago where you buy from a distributor, You sell it on Amazon and you watch that money coming in. All right. So 
The big theme of Amazon is it sells like literally millions of things, right? Not just hot sauce. Dara, can you walk us through an example of another seller in, in this situation? Yeah, this happened to Douglas Merdeza. He's an Amazon seller I spoke to who just saw his business explode. So back in 2014, he was running a barbershop in Michigan. And that summer, he ordered a bit too much of this hair pomade called Suavecito from a wholesaler. So he thought he could offload some of it on Amazon, and it sold out. So then he ordered more, and this time he paid for Amazon's super fast shipping service. I did the calculation, bought what I would, would have sold in a month, sent it in, and it sold out in like a day. Merdeza was hooked, so he turned his life upside down. He made selling hair and beauty products on Amazon his full-time business. He hired more than 40 employees. He opened four warehouses, and within a couple of years, he was bringing in $10 million in sales. This sounds like an unbelievable success story to me. What, what could go wrong? Yeah, well, fast forward to today. And his beauty company is now bankrupt. He had to lay off his employees and his warehouses were shuttered. He says the reason he went from boom to bust is because Amazon hiked its fees and started selling many of the same products he had. That made it hard to compete and essentially just pulled the rug out from under him. You can be nimble and we were definitely nimble, but there's only so much you can do when that happens so many times. And just to chime in, of course, it, it is Amazon's prerogative to change how its platform works. Amazon would argue it's doing everything it can to offer shoppers the best prices and build the fastest delivery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the Amazon spokesman told me that sellers who choose to pay the fees to Amazon do so because it's the best value around. And in this lies this inherent tension between Amazon and its sellers. Amazon is both the owner of the platform and a rival on the same platform. Amazon does not let sellers directly connect with shoppers. It sits in between. It takes a cut off each sale. And then there's more. Um, Amazon is also a big advertising business. A seller can pay to show up at the top of the search. So you might have the best beauty products, but if you don't pay, your listing can get buried. Also, Amazon owns warehouses and delivery trucks, which cost money to use. Sellers don't have to use them, but they kind of do because that's how you get to be part of Amazon Prime. Right, because as we talk about it, you hear the argument of how Amazon is really in many ways like the uh, like the railroads of, of more than a century ago that, that first started the conversation about Monopoly, where they own every single critical part of it. You just mentioned one of the biggest parts of it, Amazon Prime, the service so many people pay extra money for to get their services faster. It's, I think the estimate is two thirds of U.S. adults have Amazon Prime pay for Amazon Prime. And I guess then you have to factor in the people who mooch off their friends and family. And children. How many children are there? Yes. So all of this is part of that landmark lawsuit uh, from the Federal Trade Commission and 17 states. And the lawsuit alleges that the way Amazon treats sellers actually results in a worse experience for the shoppers, including higher prices, not only on Amazon, but actually across the internet. Walk me through how that argument works, because even taking all of this into account, I see how I can get the thing I need in like 45 minutes sometimes and for a cheaper price than 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 previously when I would have to like you know get in a car and go somewhere for it. So the lawsuit alleges that Amazon's policies result in higher prices and one direct way is this. Amazon has rules about prices. They scour the web and check if your beauty product is listed somewhere else on the internet for cheaper. Maybe it's even your own website. And if it is, your listing on Amazon actually gets demoted. Uh, maybe 
maybe it's now on page four of the search results. Um, maybe it doesn't have that yellow box that says buy now or add to cart. All of that means it could be kind of doomed. You might not get any shoppers. And then, Dara, then there's fees as well, right? What, what's going on there? Yeah. So take Nicholas Parks. He sold Valentina brand hot sauce for more than a decade. He'd buy it from a distributor for like 65 or 70 cents a bottle and then put it on Amazon. But then the fees started. Amazon says its selling fees are 15% or less on most product categories, but that's just for the listing. It doesn't take into account all the other fees, like using Amazon's fulfillment program for shipping. And actually, Park says Amazon's fulfillment was a game changer at first. It was so easy and convenient, and back then, Amazon was even subsidizing it. So it was cheap. But about five years ago, he says things began to change. In the past, those fees might have been two fifty to three dollars. Now those fees can be like five or six dollars for one bottle of hot sauce. So the result is either I can't make money or I'm just forced to raise the price. Okay, so just to underscore this, it seems to me like his fees are now ten times the cost of the actual bottle of Valentina. Yeah, so he is trying to sell it as close to break even as he can and still be attractive to shoppers. And remember how Amazon constantly checks what prices you charge on other sites? So in this situation, it can become kind of a cycle where Amazon raises fees, sellers raise prices to cover those fees, on another website, sellers don't have to pay those fees, so they could keep prices lower, but they don't because that will get them demoted on the Amazon search, which they don't want to experience. So this could mean Amazon's fees are raising prices across the Internet. Got it. Yeah. And another thing that happens a lot is Amazon checks for what sells best and then joins the party. This happened to Parks with his Valentina hot sauce. Essentially, Amazon is cutting out Parks as the middleman. So Amazon can sell for half the price, even less. How can Amazon afford that, though? Because at a certain point, you're just losing money if you do something like that, right? Yeah, Amazon can do that partially because Amazon does not have to pay the fees to itself. Mm. It does not have to pay itself to use its own delivery network, for example. Yeah, and Parks actually says that Amazon regularly sells stuff at below cost, at a loss, which squeezes sellers out. Right now, I have like seven or eight pallets of Valentina in my warehouse. And over time, the same thing happens with other sellers. As everyone stops selling that product, it opens up that space for Amazon to increase the price. And then they start to recoup whatever that initial loss was. So I've got to ask again, though, even though it is clear that Amazon dominates the market and is where so many people search, if it's going this poorly for Parks, why doesn't he just leave the site? Yeah. So I asked Parks the same question, and this is what he said. It is still the only significant third-party marketplace. So Amazon accounts for about 40 to 50 percent of online sales in America. And part of it is also maybe you bought into the Amazon shipping system. You're using all these Amazon selling tools. Years later, at some point, you do the math and it's just not worth investing in some other website. And so this big question becomes, does Amazon stay big because it's simply better or because it's done everything to stop other platforms from getting a toehold? Yeah, so the FTC lawsuit alleges it's because Amazon traps sellers and rigs the entire world of online retail in its favor. But Amazon argues the FTC has it backwards and doesn't understand online pricing. 
It says everything it does benefits shoppers, and if the government wins, we'll see higher prices, slower deliveries, and fewer options. While a lot of sellers might agree with Amazon, Merdeza, Parks, and others we've heard from say they hope this is actually a moment when Amazon starts to change. That is tech correspondent Dara Kerr, along with retail correspondent Alina Celia, covering this ongoing story. Thank you so much for helping make sense of what is going on on Amazon. Thank you. Thank you. A new children's picture book introduces little kids to a big topic. This book is banned. Words by Raj Haldar, pictures by Julia Patton. This book is banned isn't really about books being removed from libraries. As NPR's, as NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports, it's a silly story about banning things like unicorns, avocados, and old roller skates. In This Book is Banned, the hippos don't like the giraffes. The hippos over here really don't like how those tall giraffes are getting all the leaves for themselves. One hippo's like, how rude, I'm starving. The consequences are brutal. Okay, no more giraffes. Banned. And you think these hippos complain too much? Let's get rid of them too. Banned. Raj Haldar was partly inspired to write This Book is Banned because of something that happened to him after his first book was published. P is for pterodactyl, the worst alphabet book ever, is all about silent letters and other spelling quirks. For the letter O, he used the word Ouija and ended up getting some hate mail. Ouija is a, a silly game that people play on Halloween and, you know, they try to talk to ghosts. But, you know, I've gotten uh, emails where I have been called a tool of Satan. Haldar shared one such email with NPR. It's not family-friendly. P is for pterodactyl became a bestseller. Meantime, Haldar started doing some research on book bans. One of the really kind of important moments in my journey with This Book is Banned was reading about the book And Tango Makes Three. And Tango Makes Three by Peter Parnell and Justin Richardson is based on a true story about two male penguins at the Central Park Zoo who raise a penguin chick together. For a time, it was one of the most challenged books in the country, according to the American Library Association. Seeing that freedom to read is being trampled on in this way, like I needed to create something that could help them contend with the idea of book bans and understand the dangers of censorship, but, you know, allowing kids to also have fun. In This Book is Banned, there are sound effects. Fizz, buzz, whir. Ah! And Haldar breaks the fourth wall. Are you sure you want to keep reading? You do? You're having fun? I don't think you want to know what happens at the end, though. Haldar says one of his favorite books growing up was Sesame Street's The Monster at the End of This Story. It's this sort of meta picture book where, like, the book itself is trying to kind of dissuade you from getting to the end of the book. And that just makes kids want to get there even more. Kids in general, they're always trying to push at the edges of what they can discover and know about. Nothing says read me like the words banned book. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A series of earthquakes in western Afghanistan has killed more than 2,000 people, according to government officials. 
The quake struck Saturday when most of the world's attention was focused on the violence in Israel and Gaza. On the line with us to tell us more is reporter Fazal Manala Kazizai, who's long worked for NPR in Afghanistan. Fazal, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Let's start with the earthquakes themselves. What happened? On Saturday afternoon in Western Afghanistan, about seven earthquakes struck. The absence of was a district called Zindajan in the country's west near the provincial capital of Herat. Mm-hmm. Herat is about 75 miles east of the border with Iran. So the earthquakes were also felt in some part of Iran's northeast. The spokesman of the Ministry of Disaster Management in the Taliban government told me that more than 2,000 people were killed and more than 1,300 homes were destroyed or damaged. I mean, these are just devastating figures. I understand you've spoken to some of the people on the ground. What are they telling you? In fact, it's very difficult to reach people in this area. I managed to get through to one man from a village in Zindajan called Khoja. Mm-hmm. His name is Zilmai Barakzai. He wasn't at home when the earthquake struck, but returned shortly after. He says, this morning I came back and everything was gone. He says all the women and children in our village died. They were buried in a mass grave. Wow. He even helped extract some of the bodies. One of them was a child. He told me, I don't know his name. There wasn't anybody alive to help me identify him. This is just a horrible picture that, that he's painting for you. And I'm wondering, is any aid reaching these villages? What is the rescue effort at this point? Uh, yes, the Taliban government has sent officials from different ministries. The military corps is there. The traitors, people from all the area are also there to help. I spoke to another man in Herat, that is the biggest city in the western Afghanistan. His name is Nangyalai Kabirzad. He told me that the people are lining up to donate blood outside the hospital. Ambulances are still bringing in the wounded. Herat is a few thousand miles from the epic center of these earthquakes. And there, Kabirzad says people felt the ground shake so strongly that they put it out into the streets. He says people are sleeping in their cars or in gardens because they are so scared of another earthquake. Apart from the local aid, are there any international efforts that you can see to, to help? The World Health Organization says they are mobilizing resources to the area. They say the area that is affected is hard to reach. But even before this crisis, donors aren't giving enough aid to Afghanistan. Right. The World Health Organization recently cut 10 million people from a feeding program it runs because it ran out money. That's partly because of disaster in other parts of the world, like Ukraine and the Horn of Africa. But it also because the Taliban have made it very difficult for international aid groups to operate. So challenges on a lot of different fronts, making rescue efforts and, and recovery more difficult here. That's reporter Fazamanala Kazizai speaking to us from Afghanistan. Thank you so much. You're welcome. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks so much 
for spending part of your Sunday with us. And stay with us up next at 6, the New Yorker Radio Hour. And tonight, former Vice President Al Gore on the climate crisis. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Burton's Grill and Bar with modern American cuisine and craft cocktails for family meals, business lunches, drinks with friends, and group events. Gluten-free and kids' menus available, too. And Associated Industries of Massachusetts hosting a virtual discussion on DEI programs in the workplace October 11th at 10. Register at aimnet.org. If one Massachusetts lawmaker has anything to say about it, the entire Bay State will officially celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day next October 9th, the path to change. Tomorrow morning with Ruby Shinoy on 90.9 WBUR. Listen again tomorrow. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The Israeli cabinet has declared a state of war after Hamas's surprise attack this weekend. This is fighting continues today in small towns in Israel. The U.S. is sending the USS Gerald Ford Striker Group to the eastern Mediterranean, along with additional equipment and munitions to help. New York City Mayor Eric Adams wrapped up a four-day trip to Latin America, warning migrants not to make the journey north. He says migrants are being fed misinformation. More than 120,000 migrants have come to the city in the past year, straining resources and shelter. And Simone Biles got two more gold medals as the Artistic Gymnastics World Championship in Antwerp, Belgium, wrapped up today. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners with Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, offering a variety of native shrubs and trees for a landscape that's gentler on the earth. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash native shrubs. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. All of this past week, NPR has been focusing on climate change, how it's changing our world and how it's changing us. Rachel Martin has been thinking about this too, and for this week's Enlighten Me, she talked with the writer and environmental activist Terry Tempest-Williams. We all have those places where we feel most inspired, content, most alive. For me, it's Teton County, that stretch of high plains and higher mountains that extends from the southeasternmost corner of Idaho into Wyoming. I've spent a lifetime watching the sun rise and set over the Teton Mountains. But a couple summers ago, I watched those same sunrises and sunsets with dread. Wildfires from as far as Oregon had blown so much smoke into the valley, you couldn't make out the tops of the mountains. And the sun was an electric orange fireball, the most stark kind of warning that things on this earth are not as they should be. I felt sick, not just because of the smoke that seeped into my clothes and my lungs, but because of what it meant. I had understood the effects of climate change from an intellectual level for a long time, but this was the first time I felt it in a much deeper, more personal way. The experts call this climate grief. I wanted to understand what this felt like to someone who had spent their life writing and thinking about our physical and spiritual connection to the natural world. 
Terry Tempest Williams immediately came to mind. I first interviewed Terry 25 years ago at a writer's retreat in Yosemite National Park, and I have never forgotten that conversation and the reverence with which she talked about the forests, the mountains, the air, the birds. Sometimes it can be hard to talk about the effects of climate change in the aggregate. It's all so massive. The loss is hard to wrap our heads around, which is another reason I wanted to talk with Terry. She's been writing about how a particular place has changed, a place knitted close to her sense of identity, the Great Salt Lake in Utah. I asked her to start with an excerpt from an essay of hers called Believe. Believe the forests that are burning, whose surviving trees will later stand as sentinels, guard witnesses to animal bodies reduced to ash. Believe in flash floods roaring through burnt canyons, gathering debris in rivers running black in the desert, even in times of drought. Believe Great Salt Lake is retreating in plain sight, leaving what's left to the dust devils whipping up clouds of chemicals resting on the dry lake bed as we inhale the toxic world we have created. Believe in the once shimmering bodies of water on the horizon that are now nothing more than a mirage made of heat waves, death dancing on the salt flats. Believe in the silences. Before we can save this world we are losing, we must first learn how to savor what remains. This is more than an ecological crisis or a political crisis. It is a spiritual one. I love that. Thank you. You and I are from the same part of the world. You're from Utah, many generations. I was actually born in Salt Lake. And anytime I would go home to Southeast Idaho, I had to either drive by or fly over the Great Salt Lake. And for me, that place was always a mystery. Because as a kid, especially, I didn't really understand why there was this big, beautiful, colorful lake, and we couldn't go swimming in it, and we couldn't like play in the sand along the shore. It seemed sort of scary and confusing to me. How did it sit in your consciousness growing up? Oh, I think very much the same early on. Mm. Uh, my parents hated it. You know, <laughs> there was the obligatory one time where my mother and aunt took a station wagon full of kids, my cousins and brothers and I. And I remember they brought their chairs. They sat very elegantly on the shore quite a ways away. And we ran in just thrilled thinking, oh, this is our ocean. Yeah. And, you know, after the impact of going too far in, we all started screaming because kids have, you know, cuts and scratches on their legs. And it was just so salty that we thought this is this is not right. What it hurts. <laughs> then we ran in and as kids do, we pushed each other in and then we left. And I just remember we were all stuck to the seats. We had been pickled and dried. You know? <laughs> <laughs> little we looked like little crystals i don't know and i never went back again um until much later you know and fell in love with it because of the birds that surrounded the lake walk me through how your how your perception of that place has changed as it has changed because of environmental degradation you know i remember going out with my husband, Brooke Williams, when we were courting. 
I wanted him to love what I loved. Then Great Salt Lake started to rise mm-hmm. in the early 80s, 1983. And that piqued my attention because I wondered what was going to happen to the birds. And I must have gone out madly every week until the high water. And during that time, my mother was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And so the lake, the rise, the demise of the birds, my mother's illness all became inextricably linked. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm 68 years old. I've seen Great Salt Lake at its historic high, 42, 12 feet above sea level. And now at its historic low, which was last November at 41.88. So it's remarkable in a life to see the span of a lake expand and contract at once, both causing its own concerns to the ecosystem at large. But the drought is something different because as my mother was dying and she became more her essence, and in my mind became more beautiful. Mm. I feel like Great Salt Lake, she is showing us her essence too. And it is so stark and so bare, it's a haunting. Can you describe for me what it looks like. I mean, for the millions of people who don't have an image of this space and place, what does it, what does it look like, smell like, feel like there? Mm. We're now standing in the lake bed where water once was. I mean, there was a, a moment where you couldn't go to Antelope Island for many, many years, for a decade, because the water covered the causeway. Now you go out to Antelope Island and it looks like a stretched buckskin. There is no water. The birds are still there. Um, The species are still there, but the numbers are lower. They feel lower to me. This year has been a series of dates for me. I'll never forget January 5th when the BYU Brigham Young University report came out on Great Salt Lake. Shocked all of us that Great Salt Lake, if we did nothing as citizens, would disappear, die in five years. And then another date for me was June 29th when the headlines of the Salt Lake Tribune were that the white pelicans were gone. This is a bird of 30 million years of perfection. It was at Lake Lahontan with fossil records 12,500 years ago. They're gone. What do the pelicans know that we don't? So it continues to be a haunting. So when you have been there in the past year and you've seen these things, I mean, you you describe it as a haunting, but what does that mean for you specifically? What emotions? It's so beautiful. I mean, I just flew over it last night, you know, coming home to Utah. The water yesterday morning was turquoise. You know, it's brilliant. There's a clarity of light that is breathtaking. It's never not been beautiful. So is it a beautiful haunting? Is it a terrible beauty? Is it what Rilke says, you know, beauty is nothing more than the beginning of terror. Last year when I went with the photographer Fuzzle Shake, um, we walked a mile past the spiral jetty. I remember putting my hands in the water and 
suddenly I thought, Great Salt Lake is in retreat. What does that mean for us? What would that mean if we were in retreat? It became much more complex than Great Salt Lake is dying. It was Great Salt Lake is in retreat. And while she is in retreat, how do we support her in this moment? And in this case, it's not so difficult. Great Salt Lake needs water. So how do we add water? You know, can the Mormon church rise to this occasion for its people and continue to donate water rights? They were the first to do so. Um, it was appreciated, but it wasn't enough. You know, what about the Utah legislature? Can they do something more than pray? Hmm. Obviously, they would tell you that their prayers worked, and, and maybe they did. You know, who knows? Mm -hmm. But my great-grandmother always said, you know, faith without works is dead. So I think we have to look at this as a moment of action and extreme action in extreme times. There are subsets of Christianity in which people find ways to dismiss these kinds of existential concerns about climate change because it's all part of God's plan, right? Have you encountered that? Have you engaged in these debates? You know, I'm teaching at the Harvard Divinity School, and we talk about this a lot. In fact, there's a group of students that have organized, and every Tuesday night we meet in what is called a fire salon around the fire in the commons. And have I encountered that? Yes, I've encountered that among my own relatives and family members. You know, that climate change is inevitable. You know, read revelations. But on the other hand, I'm hearing more about how, how can we bring the spiritual into the political debate? Do we have the courage to understand that this is not just an ecological crisis or a political crisis or even an economic crisis? Because it is all of those things but at its heart, a spiritual crisis. And I think what I'm seeing with our students and what I'm seeing with leadership around Great Salt Lake is that people are speaking from the heart. They are speaking in terms of our responsibility to quote unquote creation, that it is our obligation when someone is in pain that you come to their aid. What used to be considered a narrow lens environmental focus is now being seen as a broader lens where our, all of our identities are being held and therefore it concerns all of us. So I actually feel encouraged by um, the church's engagement, whether it's Muslim, whether it's Christian churches, whether it's pagans, whether it's Buddhists, you know, we're seeing engagement all around in an interdenominational embrace of concern. You mentioned these groups, the student groups happening at Harvard Divinity School. Do you hear young people experiencing angst, like spiritual despair over climate change? Is it that deep? It is so deep. Climate grief is real. And when we started these, the students were in tears. We started something called weather reports, asking different people from different walks of life, from scientists to artists to theologians, what's the weather report where you are? I would say the first four weeks were all about managing and discussing and embracing climate grief. But I noticed something interesting in the 10 week course we had. At the end, 
climate grief had moved to engagement, hmm. allowed me to see, I think all of us together, that there is something deeper than hope. And that is action, mm -hmm. building community. When they first came, they were isolated, they were scared. You know, we were on the heels of, of George Floyd. Grief was central. But in the shared grief, a grief shared is a grief endured. We realized together that grief is love. And that ache we feel, that angst we feel is because of loss. And what do we do with that loss? It seems self-evident to me that you have managed your own climate grief by first embracing it and not pushing it away and focusing on action. Is that your best guidance for other people who might be listening who feel something similar? You know, I remember when my mother was dying. When I was with her, I was calm. When I was away from her, I panicked. And I want to be as close to Great Salt Lake as I possibly can. I want to be laid bare on the desert as the desert burns as much as I can. When Simone Weil said, attention is a prayer, I feel that if we can pay attention, we will know what to do. If we are present, we will know what actions are needed. For me, Rachel, it's a mobilization of love and love in the deepest way of gratitude, of compassion of deep listening it's that we're cloaked in beauty even as we're weeping terry tempest williams author and writer in residence at harvard divinity school terry thank you so much thank you rachel please take special care you can hear more from the enlighten me series with rachel martin right here same time next week And for Sunday, that's all things considered from NPR News. Before we go, a quick note about our top 